Father, we bless you in the name and through the name of your Son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we honor you as the King and as the Savior and as the soon-coming Lord of all. And Holy Spirit, we submit to you this morning. And we need so much for our hearts to be made ready for the word. So bless this time, we pray, of Bible study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. God bless you this morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. And this morning we want to spend, expen, extend a special greeting to Vision over here to my right, the high school group. And we're so glad that they're learning the Word of God and being taught in the things of Christ and part of the body of Christ. Revelation chapter 12 this morning. You might wonder what's going on over there in the back corner. That's for people who misbehaved during the service. No, in reality, it's uh, just uh, sort of a, a gathering place sometime after the service ends for uh, just furthering our discussion from this morning's message. And so we call it a wrap, and so we're going to have a wrap this morning if anybody wants to hang out, probably about 15, 20 minutes after the uh, service ends. I'll be over there, and we can just kind of casually talk through other concepts or answer questions or whatever. And if there's two people there, then there are two people there. If there are 30 people there, there are 30 people there. We're just going to gather afterwards. So that's what that's for. And that's why they're turned in that direction. Just, you know, it's not having to do with the behavior of the saints, believe me. (laughs) So uh, Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Revelation chapter 12 is a great chapter, filled with great visions, things that John saw from heaven, from his eternal perspective. Revelation 12 is an incredibly helpful chapter, because in this chapter, the wiles or the schemes, the methods of the devil are uncovered. The devil is unmasked in chapter 12. We learn what he's up to. We see his strategy. And this is so helpful to us because as we understand the devil's strategy, we're more able to defend ourselves against that evil strategy. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, concerning the devil or concerning Satan, we are not ignorant of his devices. And so we need not be ignorant of the devices of the enemy. We can learn them, anticipate them, and properly prepare for them. And so there's the great advantage in many ways of Revelation chapter 12. The chapter deals with spiritual warfare. There's warfare in heaven. Satan's rebellion against God. There's warfare against Christ, the child that is born to the woman, attempts to stop or destroy him. There's spiritual warfare against Israel, the woman herself. And uh, she, of course, is the one through whom Messiah is born and the source of all future blessings for the Gentile world. And then there's spiritual warfare against believers, accusing them before God day and night. And then there's spiritual warfare against those living on on the earth through deception. That's the spiritual warfare that is engaging uh, the people in the world. It has to do with deception. The characters in the chapter, there's a woman. There's a child born to the woman, a great dragon. There are one-third of the stars of heaven, Michael, an archangel. There is, um, of course, Michael's angels, and then the brethren, which would make up believers or followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 Uh, By way of review, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. We saw last week that this woman is Israel, Genesis 37, verses 5 through 10, the scripture interprets itself. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. 
His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And so who or what is this great dragon? Verse 9 identifies the great dragon as the devil. And a third of the stars are identified as angels in verse 9. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that these are angels who did not keep their first estate, but fell in Satan's rebellion and are reserved even to the present day in everlasting chains awaiting the judgment that is due them because of the darkness that they are in. So here's the eternal scenario. Uh, at some point in time, before the creation of the world, before the creation of man, there was an angel who was the most glorious angel in many respects. His name is Lucifer. Light bearer is the meaning of his name. Lucifer, we learn from the book of Ezekiel, was actually the anointed cherub that covered. What that means is that he was, in essence, the worship leader of heaven. He was the anointed cherub. That's what cherubs do. They lead worship in heaven. And he was the anointed one among, above them all. But there was something that somehow was able to happen inside of Lucifer, the light bearer. Instead of continuing to reflect the light and the glory of the God that he was worshiping, he somehow concluded within himself that he should be the object of worship. And so he aspired to be like the Most High God. Isaiah 14 tells us the story. The result of that aspiration that Lucifer had, which turned him into the devil or Satan, the adversary, the slanderer, that result of his rebellion, wanting to be God, wanting to be worshipped as God, was that he was ejected from heaven. He was kicked out of heaven. And when he was cast out of heaven, somehow he was able to influence one-third of the angelic host to follow him. And they then came with him in his rebellion against God. And these are the creatures that we now know as demons. And they, of course, are plentiful. And so that's the background story of all this. And so this great dragon is the devil and a third of the stars are the angels that fell with him in verse 5 it says that the woman bore a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron the male child is none other than the lord jesus christ psalm 2 is the reference here in speaking of the Messiah, Psalm 2 is what is called a messianic psalm. It speaks of the future glories of Messiah and his reign, what he will do. In speaking of the future coming Messiah from the vantage point of Psalm 2, that Messiah is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And we also learn that not only is that his future position, to rule the nations, but we see that John saw this child being caught up to God and to his throne, which is a reference to the ascension of Christ. And we think about all of the things that Christ accomplished. First of all, he's the eternal son in eternity. And then the decision was made for him to become a human being. And so that's the incarnation, born of a virgin Mary. And then he lived his sinless life. And then he was empowered by the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit at the baptism of John, and he became the anointed one, Messiah. He, three years, ministered publicly, healing, teaching, working, serving, ministering, doing miracles, raising people from the dead, and then predicting that one day he would go to a Roman cross and die for the sins of the world, and on the third day he would rise again. So we have the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. And then we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ three days later, as he had predicted. And then 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven. 
So we have the ascension of Jesus Christ. And as he ascended into heaven, the Father received him into heaven and glorified his son Jesus. And so we have the exaltation of Christ. And now he is ruling and reigning in heaven as our great high priest. And that's the one we love. The one who was incarnated, the one who lived a sinless life, the one who died on the cross for our sins, the one who did miracles, taught like no one ever taught, did things that no one had ever done before, predicted his own death, burial, resurrection, then pulled it off, ascended into heaven, and then is exalted at the right hand of his Father, and there he is praying for whom? The believers, that's right, exactly. He's our high high priest, and he's also our advocate. And he's the one we love. He's the one we follow. He's the one we serve, and he's the one that we eagerly anticipate is going to return for us one day, hopefully soon, because Jesus told his disciples, if I go away, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you might be also. And when that event happens, which is called the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when that event happens, every single place the Lamb, the Son of God, the Messiah goes is where his believers will go. If he's in heaven, that's where we are. If he comes back to the earth, that's where we will be. If he rules and reigns on the earth, that's what we'll be doing, ruling and reigning with him. Our eternal and temporal destinies are all wrapped up in Jesus, the Son of God. Whatever happens to him happens to us, to those that are believers in him. So talk about an exciting future. Boy, do we have something to look forward to in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the New Testament calls all of this that we have to look forward to the blessed hope. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's indeed what we look forward to. Now we come to verse 6. And we learn that the woman flees into the wilderness. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. The woman is Israel, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Again, the woman is Israel. She's seen here fleeing into the wilderness. Why is she fleeing into the wilderness? In the notes that you have in your bulletin, if you got a copy, she's fleeing from the persecution of the devil. We'll see that later on in this chapter, verses 13 through 17. But we also see it in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 24, where Jesus said to his disciples, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go back into the house to take anything out of the house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. And then a series of warnings. And then Jesus said, Then there will be great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days should be shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So Jesus talked about this future event, which will take place during the seven-year period, which we call the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, a future seven-year period of time yet unfulfilled. In the middle of that seven years, this individual will learn about next week, the Antichrist, He will make an image of himself that is going to be placed in the temple that all of the world is commanded to worship. That image and that whole event is called the abomination of desolation. It's an abomination because it's putting in the temple of God an image that is reserved for only God himself. Only God is to be worshipped in the temple and in his temple. Yet Antichrist, who is incarnate Satan, is going to try to reserve that for himself. When that happens, Jesus tells his disciples, flee to the mountains. Get out of town, flee to the mountains. That's what's talked about here in verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. How long is she there? She is there 1,260 days. This is the time frame. 
1,260 days using the biblical calendar, which is the Babylonian-based calendar of 360 days per year, is three and one-half years. So we have 1,260 days mentioned here in verse 6, but we see over in verse 14 that this time frame is referred to as a time and times and half a time. A time, one year. Times, two years. Half a time, half a year. So you take one time, add it to two times, two years, you've got three years. Out of half a year, you've got three and a half years. So three and a half years, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time, it's all the same thing. It's all referring to the same time frame. And that's what's going to happen with the woman or Israel during what is called the tribulation or great tribulation period. Why does she have to flee? Because she's being persecuted by the devil. We'll see more in a moment. Verse 7. The devil and his angels are cast out of heaven. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now we'll stop there because there's a lot of interesting information in this particular passage. John sees a war in heaven. It's a war that breaks out in heaven. And I would imagine that it was a full-scale conflict. The devil and his angels, which made up of one-third of the angels, are fighting against Michael, the archangel. We learn that that's his title in the book of Jude. Michael, the ruling angel, or the archangel, and his angels, which we assume would be the remaining two-thirds of the angels. So Michael and his two-thirds of the angelic host versus Satan, or the devil, and his one-third of the angelic host that fell and rebelled against him. And this is the war that's going on in heaven. But Michael and his angels prevail. They win this battle. Not because of force of numbers, but because of their reliance. They were depending upon the Lord for victory. We know this because in the book of Jude, there's an interesting statement in verse 9 of Jude chapter 1, the only chapter in Jude. And it says that Michael the archangel did not dare to bring a railing accusation against the devil when they were disputing about the body of Moses. But instead, Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. Even as great as a figure as Michael the archangel, and think great power here, great authority, Michael the ruling angel, Great figure. Even as great a figure as Michael the archangel did not dare to produce a railing accusation against the devil, nor did he dare to try to deal with this individual in his own power, but instead he said, the Lord rebuke you, and that's exactly what happened. The devil was sufficiently rebuked, and the contest over Moses' body was easily won by Michael. The same is true here. In this scene in Revelation 12, the devil loses because Michael is relying upon the one whom he served, the Lord himself, and he's relying upon his great name. Boy, is there a lesson there for you and me. I remember years ago reading books about how to deal with spiritual warfare and a lot of different theories. And I remember this one book I read, and I won't give you the author's name, but it was kooky. And I thought, this can't be right. And it gave this whole methodology of how you should rebuke the devil and stand against him and say all these things against the devil and to the devil and yell at the devil and get mad at the devil. And I thought, this can't be right. This can't be right. And really, I find very little evidence, if any, that would support me even talking to the devil. Why would I want to talk to him? I have no business with him. I want to resist him. That's what the Bible says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Put on the whole armor of God. That's the way to resist the devil according to Ephesians 6. So here we have this scene. And yet 
there are those who try to convince us that we should yell at the devil, get mad at the devil, talk to the devil, that sort of thing. I think it's arrogance, personally. If Michael, the archangel, did not dare to bring a railing accusation against the devil, then who do I think I am that I would? Instead, I'll rely upon the name of the greatest one that has ever lived, the name of the Lord Jesus. And I will hide in him. He's my rock. He's my strength. He's our power. And he is able to stand against this individual called the devil. And as I am in him and as he is in me, I will do the same. We hide behind him. We function in him. We let him have his way. So this war is fought. Michael is victorious because he knows where his power comes from. But it tells us something else that's interesting in these verses, that not only did the devil and his angels not prevail, there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. This would refer to a position that they had previously held in heaven. They no longer held that position. Apparently over the ages there has been access, as we'll see, that the devil has been allowed to have to the throne of God to accuse us. But he has had no position in heaven, no rank in heaven, no authorized place in heaven since the time that he fell. And again, we appeal to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a very interesting statement that deals with this devil individual. He had been... uh, referred to prophetically as the king of Tyre. He was perfect. He was the seal of perfection. He had everything. He was walking in the midst of the stones of fire, which refers to the very presence of God himself in heaven. That's where Satan had been walking as Lucifer. But Ezekiel tells us that iniquity was found in him. And therefore the Lord cast him as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and destroyed this covering cherub, Lucifer, from the midst of the fiery stones. He no longer had access. He no longer had a position. He could no longer be there as a privileged guest of honor. He was done. Now the only access he had was as the accuser of the brethren. And of course his power is limited as we will see. Interesting passage. So verse 9 goes on. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Note that. Make careful mark concerning that. He deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now what is it... What is in it for the devil to deceive the whole world? Well, obviously, he hates God, and so he wants to hurt God by hurting his prized creation, which are whom? Human beings, right? If the devil can hurt human beings, then in his mind he is hurting God because he knows human beings are made in the image of God and are his prized creation. So what is the chief methodology that that he employs in hurting the people that God has created? Deception. That's it. Deception. And you know that most people don't know that they're deceived. And that's what makes it deception. If they knew they were deceived, it wouldn't be deception because then they wouldn't be deceived because they'd know that they were deceived. But it's deception because it's deceiving. But that's the tool that he uses. And he introduces lies, subtle and not so subtle, to try to convince human beings of things that just aren't true. So deception always has to do with untruths or unrealities, things that just aren't real, things that just aren't true. That's what the devil does. That's what he's about. So he found someone back in 1859 that was willing to spread a massive lie that has been believed and swallowed up by millions when Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species in 1859. And so this idea 
of natural selection leading to the theory of evolution, or if you will, the hypothesis of evolution, has duped many into thinking that there is an explanation behind the universe other than a God, the God, who created everything. And that deception has had huge, huge ramifications. And then you've got the multiplicity of life philosophies, hedonism, that the purpose of life is to be as self-focused and as sensual as possible. Materialism, another philosophy, that the purpose of life is to gain and acquire and believe in that which can be seen and experienced by the five senses. Skepticism, a... (laughs) An irrational position, actually, which doubts everything. Stoicism, which embraces everything without question. Epicureanism, the idea of avoiding pain and seeking pleasure is the highest good. And then all of the religious philosophies that are, there are. Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, I mean, name them. They're all in the same category, all of these life philosophies, all of these religious philosophies, they all belong to the same category. They were foisted upon the human, being, the human race by the devil, ultimately, who, whose desire is to s- deceive the whole world. And he's done a pretty good job of it. And this is what we're contending with as believers. By the way, The great antidote for lies is what? The truth. And what did Jesus say of himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Good, you got it. Presenting Christ, preaching Jesus as the ultimate reality, as the incarnate truth, as the representative of Yahweh, as the eternal Son of God, is the answer. That's the answer. People won't get the weird ideas that they've embraced all unscrambled in their minds before they come into a full understanding of spiritual things. It's really the other way around. Embrace Christ. Get to know Him. Understand that there is such a thing as truth. The ultimate, eternal, radical truth that's in Jesus. And then he's the one that straightens out all these weird philosophies and ideas that people have in their minds. I've never met a person who is a confirmed evolutionist that has come to faith in Christ that hasn't given up evolution after they've come to faith in Christ. Because they realize, how did I believe this all these years? Who said this made any sense? How could I have grasped that? And I'm thankful that even the scientific community now is saying that it's bogus more and more all the time. And so we have this methodology. He deceives the whole world. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God. And the power of his Christ or Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So John hears this loud voice. How? What kind of a voice was it? It was a loud voice. And this loud voice has uh, these amazing things to say about the ultimate rejection and defeat of the devil he's now cast down. But in the process, he has lots to say about what the devil actually does. He accuses the brethren. That would be the same thing as saying he accuses true believers in Jesus Christ. The devil accuses true believers in Jesus Christ before God, day and night. So that tells us how often this occurs. It happens all the time, day and night. 
And who are being accused? You and me, true believers in Jesus Christ. And where is the accusation aimed? It's being presented to God in heaven. He accuses them before God in heaven. Now, he also tries to accuse us directly. That's what we call condemnation. And you know the difference between being condemned and being convicted. Condemnation comes from the devil. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. Conviction, good thing. Condemnation, bad thing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. So, no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper. And every tongue that rises up against us in judgment, he, the Lord, will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, Isaiah 59, I believe. You see, these are the things that are true. We get accused directly sometimes in the thing called condemnation. We need to stand against that with the armor of God. But this is talking about an accusation directly to God referring to us. He accuses us before God day and night. He's analyzing our situations, checking out the way we're living our lives, bringing incriminating evidence before the Father, and presenting that incriminating evidence about your life and about my life before God in an attempt to discredit God. How could you have a servant like that? Look at what that servant does. Look at what that servant is. And so the devil is constantly accusing the brethren before God. He does it day and night. But the brethren here overcame him. How did the brethren overcome him? Well, first of all, by the blood of the Lamb. We don't look at our own selves in trying to answer these accusations. We look to the blood of the Lamb. Because the blood of the Lamb is what has washed us from all of our sins by his own blood. The blood of the Lamb is what has redeemed us to God. The song of worship that we'll sing together in heaven, Revelation chapter 5. The blood of the Lamb has been the basis of that great declaration. It is finished. All the sins have been paid for. So they and we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And guess what's going on in heaven? Remember where Jesus is? Where is he right now? Right hand of the Father, right? What's his role? Great high priest. What's another title of Jesus in that role? Advocate. Defense attorney. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. John writes to the believers, he said, little, uh, little children, I write to you that you may not sin. But, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. Not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so the very one that died for us, the very one that took our place at Calvary 2,000 years ago, the very one that said, it is finished, the very one whose blood was shed and poured out for you and me, that very one is before the Father defending you and defending me against these accusations that the devil brings to the Father about our lives. We don't answer those accusations. We don't even have to. Jesus is. He's the advocate before the Father. He's defending us. You believe that? Isn't that wonderful? Now, here's the thing. If I understand that that's what's going on and I really believe what I believe about this, it changes my life. I realize that before the Father, before God in heaven, I am blameless and I am without blemish, and I am irreproachable in his sight. Colossians chapter 1. What does that do for my confidence? I mean, we talk about self-esteem. We've got an actual basis for having awesome self-esteem, which is to esteem ourselves properly. I am irreproachable, I am blameless, and I am completely acceptable in the sight of God. Why is that? Because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. 
Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed us white as snow. And he's my advocate. He's your advocate. He's defending us before the Father. 1 John chapter 2. Now that's exciting. So they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Say, that's exciting. Go ahead. That's exciting. I mean, it is. It's exciting. It's wonderful. We should be praising the Lord right now. I know you are in your hearts, but man, this is great stuff. I'm so glad because I get so down on myself sometimes. My dauber gets down. I get depressed. Woe is me, you know. Ooey gooey ate a worm. You know. you know, that kind of thing. And then I just remember what the lamb is doing right now. And I remember what the high priest is doing, our high priest is doing right now, what my advocate is doing right now. And that just lifts me up out of my self-imposed funk. I'm not there anymore because I've got somebody that's completely on my side and he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if God is for us, who can be? Nobody, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody, nobody, no one. This is good stuff. And so the heavens in this passage are commanded to rejoice. Why? Well, they rejoice because the devil's no longer able to be in heaven. He's cast out. Heaven's a much better place without him, believe me. And then uh, it tells us that the people on the earth, woe to them because now he's there and he has great wrath and he knows that he has a short time. And in the context of the tribulation period, he only has three and a half years at this point. He's just about done. In the overall context of time, for as how many years as we understand of human history, it's still a short time. One day with the Lord is, is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. So even if human history is 10,000 years, modern human history or whatever you want to call it, it's only 10 days. It's got a short time. A very, very short time. And he has great wrath because of it. So the dragon persecutes the woman and her offspring. Verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And again, in case you're confused, the woman is Israel, the male child is Jesus. So the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth. He persecuted Israel that gave birth to the Messiah, Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So during these three and a half years, time, times, and half a time, the woman, Israel, is being protected and provided for during those days. Because the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Probably speaking symbolically here, metaphorically, that the Lord was lifting up and ushering to safety his people in some way. There's a cross-reference in Exodus 19 uh, where the Lord spoke to Israel and said, You've seen what I did to the Egyptian and how I bore you on eagles' wings. And brought you to myself. And when the Lord said to Israel, I have borne you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, what he was saying was, I lifted you up and brought you out of Egypt safely and drew you to myself in a place of protection in me. And that's what's going on here. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle. And this persecution that the devil targets against Israel of course, has very much to do with what's going on all over the world today. The climate for this kind of persecution of Israel is perfect for an ongoing persecution of Israel during the tribulation period. Anti-Semitism, which is a hatred of, a distrust of, a blasphemy of God's people, the Jews, has existed throughout the centuries but it is greatly accelerated in these last days. Greatly accelerated. And just in these present days in which we're living, in recent history, we've got the attempts of Hitler 
to exterminate the Jewish people entirely in his final solution where six million Jews died in the death camps. Today we've got fanatic Islam and Islam as a faith that would love to see the state of Israel, the nation of Israel exterminated entirely and every Jew exterminated entirely. To make matters even worse, we've got the liberal church, the church that says that it's a church that doesn't actually even believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and doesn't even believe that the Bible is the Word of God and doesn't even believe that Jesus rose from the dead and paid for our sins. Yet they still call themselves a church. I wish they'd call themselves a club or something. But they are saying that the church has replaced Israel and that God is finished with Israel. And Israel no longer has a place in the economy of God and no longer is qualified to be blessed by God. It's been rejected. And so there's a form of anti-Semitism. And that's very, very strong in terms of how many people embrace that position. And the, and the Antichrist, the dragon, the devil, he's just going to continue on with the trend that already exists. And it tells us here, that in verse 15, the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood. Probably referring to just the terrors and the trials that he is able to put upon these people. He spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. A couple of cross-references. Job, in speaking of the wicked man, says terrors overtake him like a flood. Notice the language here. The serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood. Didn't say it was a literal flood necessarily, but it was like a flood. What was coming out of his mouth was like a flood. His words had great impact upon the condition of the Jewish people. Isaiah 59, another cross-reference, verse 19 it says that they should fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. And then it says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. And so that's language that is referring to the way the enemy works and his persecutions and the evils that he puts upon God's people. The flood, as the Bible Knowledge Commentary states it, represents Satan's effort to exterminate Israel. But it says that the earth helped the woman, verse 16, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So somehow the earth helped the woman. That could be a reference to rough terrain that exists in the Middle East, very difficult uh, circumstances for travel. But... What was difficult for them was helpful to Israel, and God used the natural rough terrain of that land to provide hiding places for the Jews. Some people believe that that's the solution here for the interpretive problem. But in some way, God assists the Jews, the Israelites, so that they're not completely destroyed. Now, it's not going to be easy for the Jewish people during the Great Tribulation. In Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, it says that in all of the land of Israel in that day, two-thirds of the people will be cut off and die, but one-third should be left in it. And these are the ones that the Lord will bring through the refining fire and test them as gold and silver. And then, Zechariah says, they will call upon my name. And I will answer and say, this is my people, and each one of them will say, the Lord is my God. So according to Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9, it's going to be very rough going for the Jewish people during the Great Tribulation period. Two-thirds of them will die. One-third of them will remain unto the coming of the Lord Jesus and will embrace him as Messiah. But this is what's going on as the devil continues his incessant attack upon God's people, Israel. 
Verse 17 concludes the section, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And this would refer to believers that are alive during the tribulation and great tribulation period. You say, well, where do they come from? Well, rapture of the church. That happens at any time. We go where Jesus goes. He's in heaven, we're in heaven. So there's the, he- the church is in heaven. What's going on on the earth? Well, on the earth, people are starting to come to faith in Christ through a variety of means. They're reading books, they're reading pamphlets, they're going onto the web and watching this service uh, this morning that's been archived on the World Wide Web. They're going through all kinds of different uh, ways of discovering the truth. And they start coming to Christ. They've been witnessed to, perhaps, and they didn't respond. And so now they're starting to, to believe. And it just catches fire. Then you've got 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are sealed by God in Revelation 7. And you've got the ministry of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 that the whole world sees. Their bodies lying in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days after they're killed. And then they rise from the dead and ascend to the Father. Everybody sees that. You've got an angel flying around mid, in mid-heaven proclaiming the everlasting gospel. There's a lot of witnessing going on during the tribulation period, and a lot of people come to faith, but most of them, unfortunately, are going to have to be martyred for their faith because they will refuse to take the mark of the beast. We'll get that next week. But those that are alive who haven't taken the mark of the beast and are still able to survive the onslaught of the devil and the Antichrist, they will be the ones that the dragon continues to make war with, verse 17, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So they're clearly true believers in the Lord Jesus. So let's go back to this concept of the accuser of the brethren and how the brethren overcame the accuser of the brethren. The first way he overcame, the believer overcomes by the blood of the Lamb. We've talked about that. Jesus enters the courtroom in heaven. He stands for us, and the devil's accusations have no basis and cannot stand. The Father, the judge, dismisses every case which is against us. Now, the only way that the believer can lose in this spiritual struggle, these accusations, is if we believe that the accusations brought before the Father against us are true. So we have to believe what's true. We have to start with that as we deal with this whole thing called spiritual warfare. Isn't it interesting that in the armor of God, the very first piece of the armor of God, having your loins girt about with truth. It's the very first place to start when attacked. Start with the truth. Okay, wait a minute. My head is foggy. I'm reeling. I've just gotten hit with an uppercut and with a sucker punch in the belly. And man, it hurts. And I don't know what's going on. I don't know which way is up. So where is the place I start when I'm reeling in this spiritual contest that's against me? I start with the truth. I have to clear the decks and I have to start asking myself and the Lord hard questions. What is true here? I know what I'm feeling. I know what I'm experiencing. I know what's being said. But what is true? What's real? What does God's word say? That's where we start. That's where we begin. And we always begin there. And then we go to the breastplate of righteousness. And then we go to the shoes of peace. And then we go to the shield of faith. And then we go to the helmet of salvation. And then we go to the sword of the Spirit. But we start with the truth. The order is important. So the truth is what sets us free. The second way that they overcame him was by the word of their testimony. And this is the testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. 
and the testimony of their experience of Jesus Christ. The word of their testimony. What God has done in my life, what God is doing in my life. What Jesus has done in my life, what Jesus is doing in my life. That's very powerful. And this underscores the importance of being verbal about what we experience in Christ. I'm a big advocate of personal devotions. I am. I am every morning. And I love to read the Bible, and it's a joy to be able to spend time with the Lord. But I also need to verbalize what's going on. I need to verbalize what I'm learning. I need to share my experiences with somebody. Because when I do, when I verbalize my testimony, it makes it that much more powerful to me and a blessing to others. Quiet believers, with regard to their testimony, weaken themselves and withhold blessing from the rest of the body of Christ. So we need to share. 1 John 5, verses 10 through 12, this is a cross-reference. Interesting, when Paul is being accused by the Jews and he was brought before trial before the Romans, and he stood there before Agrippa, and then he stood before the, uh, the authorities... What did he do? He gave his testimony. Acts 22, Acts 26, he gave his testimony about how he came to Christ and how that led him to the present position of having to stand in a trial before these accusers of his. He could have brought in a highfalutin attorney, you know, and paid massive legal bills. And I'm just kidding. You know, he could have done all that stuff. But instead, he just defended himself by the word of his testimony. And so instead of being killed, he was able to stand trial before Caesar. And that worked out great. I mean, it was hard for Paul, but he wrote some pretty awesome epistles from prison. We call them the prison epistles. And he won a lot of people to Christ there in Rome. And then thirdly, they overcame him because they didn't love their lives unto death. What this is talking about is they made a commitment to the Lord even if it meant death for them. That was the commitment they made to the Lord. This commitment may result in me dying because I've aligned myself with Christ. But that's not going to stop me. I'm going to make the commitment anyway. That was how they overcame the devil. They did not love their lives unto death. What a humbling thing in Pakistan to realize that these people that were standing up in the altar calls and coming forward to receive Christ were going to be giving public testimony to their faith in Jesus as Messiah and as Savior and as Lord, which meant that they weren't going to follow the Prophet Muhammad anymore. And they weren't going to be following the teachings of the Quran. And they were going to be calling God their Father, not Allah. And it also meant that they might lose their lives. So that was the kind of commitment. And you know, you can't stop people that have this kind of commitment. Remember the three Hebrew children before Nebuchadnezzar? He said, whenever you hear the music play, get down on your knees and worship this golden image that I've set up. And they said, well, we don't even have to think about this, king. You can go ahead and play your music and you can go ahead and have your image. We're not going to bow. And even if it costs us our lives, we're not going to bow. It just isn't in our worldview. (laughs) It's not the way we're handling things. And the king was so enraged at these words. What could he do about it? Kill him? (laughs) That's the worst they could do. He heated up the furnace seven times hotter than it had been heated before. And he threw these three Hebrew youths into the prison. And then he looked, or into the furnace, and he looked. He said, didn't we throw three guys into that fiery furnace? Yeah, three, king. Well, how is it that I see a fourth in there? And he looks like the Son of God. So he brought him out that fire and their hair hadn't been scorched or burned or singed and their clothes didn't even smell like fire. And you get the feeling from the story that 
because the Son of God was in there with them in the furnace, they would continue to stay in there even if the fire would have kept burning. Better to be in that fire, you've heard this before, better to be in that fire with the Lord than out of the fire without Him. Isn't that true? They didn't love their lives unto death. Here's the key, folks. There is a devil who deceives. There is a devil who accuses. There is a devil who spews out great floods of persecution against God's people. But we overcome him. We win by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and when we do not love our lives unto death. I'm so glad that the Lord has unmasked the devil's wiles and shown us the key to victory. Aren't you? Lord, we thank you for this time that you've given us in your word. We thank you for the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. We thank you for the person of Jesus Christ, our King and our Master and our Lord, the one who died for us. We thank you for the certainty of our position in him and the strength that he constantly provides us. We thank you for his ministry as our high priest and as our advocate. We just love you, Father. We love you, Jesus, and we're glad to be part of your kingdom. Strengthen us in these things, we pray, Lord, and cause your word now to become burned within us by the Holy Spirit. And as we're just in an attitude of prayer right now, I just want to say a word or two to those who've not yet made that commitment to Jesus Christ. You've not yet said, yes, Lord, and made Jesus your Lord. And believed in him, that he's the one that died for you, that he's the one that is worthy to follow. You've not made that commitment yet. Lord's calling you right now. He's calling you to make that commitment today. To make a public, open commitment and confession. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For with the mouth... Confession is made unto salvation, and with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. This morning is your opportunity to make that confession of faith in Christ. What will he do when you open your life up to him and believe in him? He'll forgive you, and he will make you a new person. You can trade in your ID card for a brand new one. You are now going to be in Christ. And the Bible says that the one who is in Christ is a new creation. He will make you a new person. He'll give you the power to live like you've never lived before. He'll give you joy and purpose for living like you've never had it before. He'll come into your life and you'll finally know the God that made you in a very personal way. We're not talking here about religion. We're not talking here about joining a church. We're only talking about having a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about here. And if you haven't made that commitment yet, the Lord is calling you to make that commitment right now. And if that's you this morning here in this room, I'd like you to just do something real brave right now. I would like you to stand where you're seated. Just stand up right now from your seat. I want to have a word of prayer with you and help you invite the Lord Jesus Christ into your life to take over. Just stand right where you are. Anybody this morning. It's a time to make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is my Savior. That's what you want to say. Jesus is my Lord. I want to follow him. That's what you want to do.
Eternity is hinging on this decision, you know. The Bible says that as many as received him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. But those who reject him, it's the only sin that a person can, for, can commit that God can't forgive. He can forgive murder. He can forgive anger. He can forgive jealousy and backbiting and any other sin you can mention. But he can't forgive it when somebody refuses to believe in his son. That's the only unforgivable sin. Anybody this morning, rise to your feet. Right where you're seated. Okay. Okay. God bless you. Let's stand together, shall we?